questions. Now I'll probably throw in some more, so but I'll try and limit it to two. Um, the how and the why of his travels. The how and the why. Um, as I uh, approach this text this morning, uh, and I usually do this in a sermon, um, I don't know if this qualifies as true exposition of Scripture because I'm not really expositing Scripture yet, but I'm aware of our historical moment. And I'm always thinking about that, and I, I do read on what it means to be modern or postmodern, and I'm intrigued by those subjects because I believe this is the context in which we are receiving. This is the world we live in, 2016. Uh, and we're interpreting life often through the lenses of our contemporary moment. Well, the picture I've had you look at is a picture somewhat of the modern era. It is from 1888. Uh, it may not be as clear, obviously, as the original. Uh, it actually comes from a leadership book on leadership change, and it's the beginning, uh, it's the cover of the, of the book. And this is from a, uh, a Belgian writer, a Belgian author, of artist, I should say, and it is the triumphal entry of Jesus. But you'll notice that everyone looks European in the picture. And it is from 1888. And it is what it would have been like for Jesus to have the triumphal entry into Brussels in 1888. Now, as you probably just glanced at the picture, it probably takes a long time to really look at it. Um, it's not Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, Brussels is a different town. Uh, if you noticed, if you did find Jesus, how many of you found Jesus? All right, everybody found him, all right. Kind of a where, where's Waldo kind of a thing, right? So it was hard to find Jesus. And uh, that was by intention. And there's only a couple of people looking at Jesus. That's interesting. And then the crowd is actually looking at we who are watching the picture, the crowd's looking forward, and Jesus is just part of the crowd. And uh, he is, doesn't seem like he's making much of an impression on anyone. Everyone's eyes are on Jesus in Mark 11. At least that's the impression we get. But here in, uh, the artist's name is James Enzor, by the way, in Enzor's pa uh, painting, Jesus is just part of a flowing crowd. He's not that distinct. And Jesus is rather lost in the picture. So Jesus joins a procession of modern people. Modern people. He is really not in a position to challenge the status quo. He must accept the crowd and their, the flow of interest and things that they're pursuing, they have found other things to captivate their attention. Blaise Pascal said that the word that de describes the modern condition is diversion. 
that we always have some diversion that will draw us away from considering ultimate truths or ultimate realities. Self-interest has dominated modern people here in 1888. And there is an order to political life, social life, and people are pretty settled into how things ought to be. And if Jesus wants to join the crowd, he's certainly welcome. But he doesn't have any exclusive hold on people's attention. And he's really not noticed. They cannot comprehend nor do they care to have their life altered or to have anything new introduced to their lives. Think about that. We're going to explore for a moment the how and the why of the triumphal entry of Jesus on this little donkey. And my prayer for us is that we would see him. See him. See his exclusive attraction, his unique attraction. See him and adore him with greater hosannas than the original crowd. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, would uh, identify with the crowd there in Brussels years ago. I am by nature not interested in you uh, disrupting my status quo, uh, the settled way I want life to be. So uh, in this moment, I pray you would uh, deepen, deepen our grasp of his uniqueness. Father, show us how special your son is. Help our hearts be freed, more free, to find him. Father, help us find him today. Speak to us from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, a couple of questions for us, the how and the why. Um, just by way of the, the flow of Mark 11, I realize we're just sort of touching down on it for a moment. Uh, Mark 11 is really Jesus' work. It begins his work in Jerusalem. That will last for a couple of chapters in Mark's gospel. He will spend time teaching, uh, confounding the Pharisees, and he heads in this, in this narrative, in, this, in the story of Mark, uh, we have Jesus Receiving the praise of the people, heading to the temple. And he sort of does a pre-inspection of the temple because he is going to cleanse it in just a moment. He is going to turn the tables and declare Israel's worship to be um, idolatrous and uh, devoid of, of sincerity. So that's sort of the context that it's going to be the work of Jesus in Jerusalem. And, of course, this is his final, final week leading up to, to the cross. Now, we see two things just by way of uh, an introduction. We see his remarkable humility. There's no uh, Roman war horse here. Yeah. Uh, the generals tend to get the most bulky-looking, muscular-looking horse 
uh, to parade around in and inspect their troops. Uh, this is a little donkey. I, I don't know if you have, we, we're not really in an agricultural setting here so much, but um, have you seen a little donkey? Have you ever seen a little donkey? Little donkey. Uh, our family was in Turkey uh, back in 2007, and I was walking around one morning, and there was this scene right from the New Testament, right, right behind me, a man walking up this, uh, uh, riding up this little dirt road, and the donkey was was not only carrying him, but uh, some stuff on the back of the man, on the back of the donkey. And there was draped over the donkey a, a blanket so that his feet were just showing right just from a little bit. These little tiny, little tiny feet, ding, 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 little tiny feet. And I looked at it with this, oh, how's that working? How's that work? And the, and the little donkey just kept moving on. Must have had a couple hundred pounds on him. And just and I saw this thing and it was such a strange sight, an unusual sight. A beast of burden, not known for their speed, not known for their beauty, really sort of the, uh, the end of a lot of jokes, right? A donkey. Combine that picture of Jesus and that humility and that humble moment being carried on the donkey, and then... Remember and note that zeal is going to captivate his heart and be demonstrated as he cleanses the temple. Humility and zeal are the two characteristics of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And the plot of Mark's gospel is intensifying. It's intensifying. He is going to be severely tested tested, and he is going to suffer as he does God's will. And we, as those who are, and I think the the theme of Mark's gospel is discipleship. Uh, We who are watching the story are drawn in. Uh, There's no real, there is, Jesus does directly teach at the end of this passage about the rocks crying out in praise of him. But beyond that, there's no direct teaching by Jesus. And so we're watching a story, we're watching the account of the entry, and we're being drawn in and and, and the message is coming in directly. What about you? What about your humility? What about the, your response to the call of God? If you're following Mark's gospel, you're following a call to be a disciple, and you're watching him enter with great humility, but also zeal. And we're going to see this zeal demonstrated in the disciples on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, uh, during when Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, we are now going to see that same spirit of zeal take, uh, inhabit itself in, the, in the, the disciples, and they are now going to take that zeal for worship, true worship of the, of the living God. They could take that same zeal demonstrated here. They could take that same zeal to the nations. So we are being taught indirectly from this passage. What about me? Am I following this Jesus? What would it mean for me to follow him? And so how does he travel? How does he travel? He travels with great humility. Okay. Another observation about the text. Often you'll hear this, and I'm sure that I am, I've said this before on Palm Sunday or Easter week sometime. 
that we often hear this from pulpits, that the same people who cheered Jesus are the ones who will cry out, crucify him on, on Friday. Uh, and that's, there is truth to that, that no doubt people in this crowd turned from Hosanna to crucify him. No doubt about that. But I don't think that is actually really the point of the passage for us to be sort of cynical toward them and say, yeah, yeah, who can trust what they're saying, you know, and they're, they're really not sincere. I think, I think Jesus, it's clear Jesus does receive their, their praise. And um, as flawed as their praise is and as flawed as our praise is, uh, Jesus receives it. And they are crying out, David's son the great son of David, the one anticipated, is going to bring the kingdom. That's what they thought. Now, they thought in terms of much more concrete terms of the kingdom, having to do with Rome, having to do with their oppression. That's clear. But they've got it right. We have to give them some credit. They see and perceive enough of Jesus to say, this is the son of David. And he is ushering in the great promised days of David. Whenever I teach the Old Testament, that's like one of the key moments. Second Samuel uh, uh, 7, 12, and 13, the promise to David that one of his sons will reign on David's throne forever. And that begins on the ascension as Jesus ascends and begins to reign. Now, what the people are saying is, we have a king, he's worthy of our adoration, and they are essentially saying, hooray! <laughs> that's kind of, we don't say that often. That's kind of an old-fashioned word, right? What we say is today is we go, yes, right? We go, yes, right? Well, I think that's, that would be perhaps the modern equivalent. They have rightly identified him as David's son. They say yes, and he receives it. Now, I want to encourage you as you are listening today, I want you to encourage you that we are to shout Hosanna with a deeper understanding than the original crowd. So today's message really is about our praise, our worship, our response to God. So now the how. All right. How does he travel? He travels in humility. Now, excuse me, now the why. Why does he travel? Why does he travel? Well, there's many thoughts here. In fact, the whole of the Bible is concluded here in all of its promises in Jesus. The why. Much of, uh, of this is Really, the why is explained in, in church, in worship, uh, Sunday after Sunday. So we can never really grasp it enough in, in, in one service or one sermon. But I would suggest a couple of things as to why. Why does he do this? He's responding, first of all, to the Father's call. He is one on mission. He is one responding to the Father and obeying the Father. Remember at his baptism in Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, recorded in Mark chapter 1, we have Jesus being baptized and the Father saying what? At the moment of his baptism, 
The Spirit is seen as falling upon him in, 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 a, in a sense of anointing him for ministry. And the heavens opened up and the Father says, this is my son. He identifies him. And what is the Father's attitude toward this son? In whom I am well pleased. Now this is true throughout his life, but in particular the last week of his life, he becomes Isaiah's suffering servant. Why does the father say, I am pleased with my son as he receives a baptism of repentance? He has nothing to repent from or of because he is associating with sinners. All in Israel who were repenting at that moment, he is associating with sinners. And that's why the father's voice booms. This is my son. He associates with sinners. He is completing the plan of redemption. And this brings me pleasure. So the how is humility. The why is responding to the Father's pleasure and call. He communicates that there is a true God who is to be responded to, who is to be loved, who is to be obeyed, and this is the delight of the human heart. Now, to accomplish redemption, this will require suffering. Again, we are disciples watching this. We're being drawn in. Am I being called to suffer? Am I being called to follow Jesus like this? I would suggest another answer besides the idea of responding to a call I would say another answer to the why is this. Why is he entering into Jerusalem? And what he's doing is he's instructing us about what is life for. You and I cannot look at Jesus and detach ourselves from his mission and say, well, that was for him, obeying God's call. And of course, God has a role in my life, of course. But it's a role. We can't watch Jesus and conclude that. The Father has the role in my life. And it is from the Father that I understand what life is. In this picture... No one wants the status quo upset. No one's asking Jesus to evaluate their lives and help them conform to the Father's will. It's not a question for moderns. We have nothing to reorient our lives around. We have no changes to make except for what things are personally preferred, would bring us a little bit more happiness, But in the end, we have our life together and a little bit of leaf in God, a little resurrection on the side, a little atonement over here is fine. Oh, sure, that's great. But I am at the core of my life is me and I need no fundamental reorientation. You can't read Mark's gospel without becoming 
interested in discipleship and realizing the disciples are having the entirety of their life reoriented. So the why is not only responding to a call, but the why is also he's going into Jerusalem to help us understand what life is, and that is we are to respond to God and have full integration with God's will into our lives. We are to conform to the revealed will of God. Several years ago, um, I had a chance to carpool across the island from Kailua over to Honolulu early in the morning with uh, kids who were going to the school that our daughter Aubrey went to for high school. And so we had a uh, carpool and about five or six kids were piled into my van. Um, most of them, I think perhaps all of them, were former Trinity School kids. Um, but we didn't have through 12th grade at that time, so we needed to find another place for high school. And so I uh, did this for some four years. Right? And it was very interesting to watch some of the transition that happened. So 15-year-olds, uh, they get a chance to talk to Pastor Todd. Right, so we're in the traffic, and by the way, we're in the traffic. Like, let me tell you, I mean, if I don't have to go out there, you know, I don't go out there. Uh, but I was introduced to, oh, 615 is better than 645. And 745, forget it, go home. Wow. So these kids have a chance now at 15 years old to talk to me and hang out with me. And so they'd be up there, the co-pilots walk, and we'd be driving along. It'd be very interesting. At 15 years old, they had all kinds of questions. They're trying to integrate their life with what they understood about God, the gospel, Jesus. Asking good questions, really good questions. We had good conversations. But it's interesting as they got older, about 17 or 18 years old, this is just my own limited observation no more questions. Not, no? Well, we talked about food. We talked about other things, but no more deep questions. I don't have 100% certainty as to what happened, but I have a guess. I have a guess that they became confident in how they understood Jesus, his role in their life. And uh, the hard work was already done, and they'd already figured it out. At a time at 18, 19, 20 years old, when some of the most important, profound questions you might have in life are actually hitting you, they have closed the door. I don't know for sure. But the windows seem to begin to close. Have you come to a conclusion about Jesus? Is he just part of the crowd that you are walking in? Or are you fixed upon him are you saying to him Jesus you and you alone can reorient my entire life don't don't have me ever close the window shut the door on you I want to be a disciple I want you to train me so he's teaching us to ask the question, do you understand who you are? Do you understand what life is? See? Are you responding to God's call? 
I am called as a follower of Jesus to relearn my life completely. And to do that, I have this story of Jesus on this little donkey. Am I prideful? Am I demanding? Am I... um, Am I humble? Am I saying, Jesus, okay, this is part of my discipleship. I will receive it. You see, what's on display here is the surrender of self-will. And this is such an extraordinary surrender of self-will that even rocks will cry out. This is such a servant of God's purposes that God is being glorified in a magnificent way. And someday, we are going to join a new creation. And I don't know if that new creation is going to have a voice But we're going to join the new heaven and the new earth and the redeemed of God are going to have a voice and a continual voice of Hosanna. Nice work. Yes. You see, why does creation, the river, Psalm 98, clap its hands? However that works. Why do the hills sing? Why are these anthropomorphisms put to, put to this creation? Why? Because the creation has been put under a curse through Adam. And the creation is mourning and in sorrow because of our race. And so creation itself needs to be redeemed. And the redemption Jesus accomplishes is far more than our own personal salvation, as important as that is. It is cosmic in its dimensions, extraordinary, affecting all the stars that have been made, all of the cosmos. So he travels into Jerusalem to finally give a voice to creation a voice that will not be hindered by the curse. He will cry out on the cross, it is finished. And that relates to the curse, ultimately. The crown of thorns was given him. The the product of this fallen world, the curse, was placed on his head. And he extinguished the curse through his offering. And so this creation was subjected to this curse, and oh my, are the hills going to sing and the stars begin to shout. So the question, of course, is, are the people in Jerusalem this day that different than the people in Brussels, as depicted by uh, the artist Enzor? They're not that different, but they've got it right for a moment. Perhaps they understand about 3% of what you understand. Your grasp 
your exposure, your understanding, your sight, your vision, what you hear is extraordinary. And I've said this multiple times. You grasp more than the prophet Ezekiel. You see more clearly than the prophet Isaiah. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. This is what Jesus told his disciples. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly, the prophets long ago longed to see the things that you see and longed to hear the things that you hear. They saw in his day enough miracles and wonderful things. They saw enough in his day, heard enough in his day, extraordinary teaching. I, I propose they understood about 3%. But what about you? What you see of his glory and wonder calls you to be a disciple of his, draws you in. Even a story as simple as the donkey ride draws you in. I'm compelled to follow him. The modern world with a thousand diversions ultimately only has you following your heart. And where has that got you? Where has that led in your life? It leads to despair, loneliness, sorrow. Yes, there can be victories and success and career. But really, unless we begin to worship him aright, we're playing with diversion no matter how much success we experience. So Jesus today is challenging our status quo through humility. He's calling you to redefine yourself. C.S. Lewis once said, What you see and where and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Jesus calls the poor in spirit to hear him and to follow him, to be re-taught and to relearn the whole of their lives. Let's pray. And so your call is upon us, Lord, and it is a good call. We're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity that we've had to just look at Jesus. Father, I pray that I and my friends today will not lose him in the 